Hey everyone, welcome to Dialogos, a Harker Philosophy Club podcast. I'm Akshay. I'm Sophia. I'm Quentin. And today we're joined by Lawrence Joe. He's an assistant debate coach at Harker, also a film minor from Oklahoma University and runner-up at the Intercollegiate Ethics Bowl Nationals in 2018. How are you doing, Lawrence? I'm doing fine on week 13 of uh, quarantine. So today we'll be talking about effective altruism, uh, some of the reasons for it, reasons against it, how it can be applied to some of the current situations that are happening, and then finally also discussing uh, doing philosophy in college. So I guess with that, Lawrence, could you describe effective altruism? Yeah, so effective altruism as a community arose in the late 2000s. It's the project of philosophers Toby Ord and William McCaskill. As a fun side note, William McCaskill is the youngest tenured professor of philosophy at the age of 28 at Oxford. So um, cool dude. Um, And there's a bunch of different floating definitions of what effective altruism is, but one of the organizations they created called the Center for Effective Altruism defines it as the project of using evidence and reason to figure out how to benefit others as much as possible and taking action on that basis. Um, And so one of the interesting things about that definition is that it's less associated with philosophy than you might initially think, because it's not in and of itself a normative claim. It can almost be thought of as a sort of conditional. If you think that donating is good, then it ought to be the case that you use evidence and reason to maximize the effectiveness of those donations. Of course, there is huge huge overlap with um, ethics and philosophy, but uh, principally on its own, it's not necessarily a philosophical project. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I'm, I think around like 90 to 95% of the supporters and biggest champions of effective altruism are act utilitarians, uh, Macaskill, Peter Singer, etc., um, because from a utilitarian perspective, it makes a lot of sense that uh, one should maximize their effective utility given to society through charitable donations. And so that's kind of how the effective altruism movements determine which foundations are worth of giving money to and which are not. If our viewers want kind of a more substantial introduction, I will direct them to the TED Talk by Peter Singer. Um, You can find it on YouTube. It's kind of what brought effective altruism to the wider world, what made it more of a global phenomenon instead of something just shared between like philosophical elites. Yeah, we'll make sure that's put in the show notes if you want to see that later. Yeah, and certainly that TED Talk by Singer is probably the most um, well-known out there uh, piece of media that people can watch. He also has an article on it in the Boston Review where he kind of summarizes that TED Talk and adds a little bit of depth to it. And there's, of course, several books written on the subject. Probably the most famous is, um, I believe it's just called Giving What We Can um, by William McCaskill, but I might have gotten the title wrong. Um, certainly Singer is probably the most influential person other than the founder uh, founders of Ord and McCaskill, um, mostly because the sort of modern movement of charity giving and the value of donations is probably most directly attributable to him, and in particular his seminal 1971 paper, Famine, Affluence, and Morality. Um, that's probably the probably strongest foundation for arguing that we have some moral obligation to donate, and then once you sort of agree with Singer's principle of bene- beneficence, the idea that you ought to donate uh, money to worthy causes, you end up kind of accepting most of the arguments for effective altruism and the idea that you, if you donate, you ought to do the best that you can with the resources you have. So what common situations do effective altruists care about? What do they want to apply donations to? 
there is this concept in effective altruism, which is called like cause worthiness, I believe. Um, and the idea is that there are uh, certain uh, causes of different fields, some of which are more scientific in nature, some of them more are related to governance, some of them are related to technology, etc. Um, and the idea is that we are looking for fields that are neglected, uh, which is to say that they're not really currently in the mainstream. And we're looking for fields in which the most amount of difference by one person can be made. So effective altruists can loosely be divided into two groups. So let's starting with careers. Under this sort of part of effective altruism, there are probably two primary components to careers. The first is a project which is known as earning to give. And this is the idea that you should pick a career that will maximize the amount of money that you can receive. And all that money should then be donated to worthy causes. And I guess we'll talk about what worthy causes are here in a second. Um, this is a view that used to be popular and it is in fact still like some random rationale given by some finance people who like want to justify going into finance and like doing, you know, questionably ethical things in the world because they're just like, ah, if I make enough money, like that offsets the badness. Um, for this reason and others, this is not a view of effective altruism that remains particularly popular amongst um, the, its believers. McCaskill in particular has publicly backed off this view and has said that this is really a very marginal view. It should be only be adopted by a very select few of people. The other group is uh, maximizing the value of your career in and of itself. Um, and this is where projects like 80,000 Hours, which is a group that is headed by Rob Wiblin and is also a publisher of a great podcast called The 80,000 Hour Podcast, um, dedicates its uh, resources to helping people pick careers that will best maximize the value of their resources and time. Um, the name 80,000 hours is derived from that being the sort of average amount of hours that you'll spend in a career over your lifetime. And here, you, they'll try to direct people into careers where they can make the most influential impact. Um, and so some of those are related to governance, some are related to technology, some are related to research projects, some of them are related to charities. There are a lot of different ones. Um, or global health, that's a big one nowadays for obvious reasons. Um, and so those are probably the two big things related to uh, careers. So earning to give and sort of picking a career that will do the best in the world. Most of us are not going to do that. So the second part of effective altruism is probably where most of us are uh, more familiar with its project, which is the idea of donations. Um, here, uh, effective altruists donate to a lot of different causes um, and a lot of different cause areas. And I'll just mention a few of them and we can kind of springboard off from there. Um, the most obvious one is extreme poverty and uh, global health crises. Um, in particular, uh, Organizations like GiveWell will try to measure the effectiveness that your dollar uh, will do uh, at any given charity. Um, and in particular, the Against Malaria Foundation rates very highly in their rankings and their other ones as well. And the idea is that like, if you donate to sort of poverty-related issues or global health-related issues, you can buy malaria nets to save people from dying, or you can uh, fund projects like Give Directly, which just literally gives cash to poor areas in, in, of the world and tries to bring them out of poverty. Um, those are probably the two big ones, but there are other ones like you know, animal welfare, et cetera. Um, those can be separate discussions. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up like a small thing that I don't think we've addressed yet, which is that because <clears throat> effective altruism is in a sense born from like a utilitarian tradition, um, they uh, most effective altruist movements include animals in their definition of beings that are worthy of consideration as beings capable of producing positive and negative utility. Mr. Zhao, I'm correct in this, right? Yeah, and in fact, uh, an effective altruist organization put out a ranking of all the Democratic presidential candidates in terms of like what they like who they thought would do the most good for the world. I believe, weirdly enough, Julian Castro was like number one. I, I, unclear why, but it but one of the reasons for why you get moved really high up in the rankings is the more that you do for animal rights, the better you are, just because there's so many millions of animals who live lives barely worth living and uh, mass amounts of animal suffering that can be solved um, pretty easily. 
I also want to bring up that there's a lot of respect for many. I I personally have a lot of respect for many of these effective altruists because they often kind of live their ideology. You know, a lot of them are vegetarians. A lot of them themselves, even if they're college professors, give mass donations to these organizations. They really try try to live up to the standards that they put down, unlike some other, you know, big name college professors. Um who like hold hold ethical theories that they don't live up to as much. You see effective altruism because it bleeds into the social sphere as something that is more lived and less less idealistic and less ivory tower. I think that uh, brings up a good point about how much you live your philosophy, especially in the context of effective altruism. So for example, you mentioned taking different careers. Obviously a career is something that shapes the rest of your life and People often have more self-centered reasons for taking a career, obviously. Um, things like the amount of earnings, where they're going to live, if it meets their passions, how it like stacks up with their qualifications, etc. So uh, what do people like effective altruists say when trying to re- reconcile, really, between these the natural and very justified self-centered reasons you have for picking a career and also going to something like uh something that would help maximize your impact uh, in a manner prescribed by effective altruists. One of the larger deviations between the theory of consequentialism that you described earlier, the idea that you should impartially maximize the good for the world, um, and where the differences between that and effective altruism become most stark. In that, effective altruism is uh, very closely aligned with consequentialism, but it is not uh, a mere restatement of it in such a way that it commits you to such strong degrees of impartiality and such that it forecloses the possibility for personal projects um, and such that it like doesn't recognize things like side constraints, freedoms, rights, other goods in the world that aren't just purely hedonistic or preference-based depending on which flavor of utilitarian you are. Um, and in particular, effective altruists spend a lot of time delving into the psychological literature behind uh, sort of the value of personal projects, both on your mental health, um, so its effect on you as a person, but also its effect on others because it turns out, you know, living a life barely worth living because you are, you know, basically in servitude towards helping others doesn't really end up making your contribution as effective as it ought to be. Um, I think some of the more interesting research on this comes in the area of careers. 80,000 Hours has um, a few people on their team who's basically their job is just kind of go through this literature and figure out ways to help accommodate people who are trying to make these difficult decisions, such as deciding whether or not to sacrifice their life, uh, sacrifice in a, colloqu- in a not colloquial sense. Um, for a particular career, given that they have other preferences like that they'd rather do with their time. Um, the basic idea is like, certainly career choices are not for everyone. Like not everyone is set up, psychologically speaking, to pick a career where they're basically admitting that they're uh, not really into it in any deep sense, um, even though it would sort of produce utility maximization. And so 80,000 hours has worked around this in multitudes of different ways. So some people just are psychologically resilient enough that they do pick careers that they don't otherwise enjoy that much. Um, But 80,000 hours mostly spends its time trying to find ways to balance those competing goals, trying to find careers that you both enjoy and will also end up maximizing your good relative to any other plausible alternative. Yeah. Um, A similar question to that. A lot of one of the most basic critiques of utilitarianism consequentialism is the kind of question of how demanding it is uh for listeners context often the kind of most basic example is that uh similar to what you described theoretically a perfect utilitarian would spend their entire life as a kind of like morality slave to just producing utility for other people so they'd spend all of their free time uh working in charities they'd constantly be burning themselves out to produce maximum utility which would lead 
you know, from a deontological sense would lead to everyone being miserable. Um, uh, giving what we can, which is one of the big effective altruist organizations, uh, gives kind of like a goal of 10% of personal income going towards initiatives like this. Uh, the founders pledge, like another similar thing, I think has around 2% of like total personal proceeds should always be directed towards uh, chari- charitable organizations. How do you think that the effective altruism movement is able to create standards like these that avoid the kind of question of demandingness while still remaining a ethically durable and rigorous uh, proposition for people? Right. So obviously no expert on the issue um, and certainly responses differ depending on which area you come from. So for example, people that dedicate their lives primarily towards reducing global catastrophic risks, particularly those of existential nature, aren't as susceptible to this criticism because they're already doing such good in the world by like working on AI research or global catastrophic biological risks and stuff like that. Um, And so like it's less likely that they're going to fall prey to like, why didn't you donate a little bit more money towards poverty? It's like, well, because their life is already dedicated towards a pretty significant cause. But I assume that's not everyone, um, nor is that the more interesting side of things. So I'll get to the like actual substance. So there's two components of overdemandingness. The first is uh, one in a sort of moral sense, like should moral systems demand um, lots of, of moral agents? And the other is a sort of psychological thing, which is like, what is the impact on you psychologically speaking of, uh, sort of a system of morality that is too over-demanding. Like, does it, like, deflate your ability to work or your your uh, propensity to do good in the world, et cetera, et cetera? The moral one, like, you can answer in a different way, a variety of different ways. Like, if you're a consequentialist, you're going to answer it like a consequentialist. If you're just, like, an egalitarian, you're going to answer it like an egalitarian. And those responses are probably too varied to get too deep into, although if you want to discuss any of them in particular, that'd be worth it. The psychological side is probably where effective altruism has contributed the most novel answers. So... This response probably uh, was most salient in response to Singer's 1971 work that I referenced earlier, the idea that um, you ought to you know, save someone's life if it doesn't come at significant personal cost to you. Um, the example that he gives here is that uh, if you're walking past someone in a pond who's drowning, you ought to jump in and save that child, even if that would cost you the clothes that you were wearing, and let's say that cost like $400. Like You're really balling on the, the Yeezys or something, and it costs you that much money. And most of us would still say, hey, like that $400 is an acceptable price to pay uh, to save the life of one child. And Singer takes this uh, to be a sort of obvious conclusion that almost no one denies and extrapolates it to say that once you eliminate the proximity bias, you can also save millions of drowning children around the world um, who are also dying from very preventable causes like poverty, illness, lack of access to food and water. And predictably, if you look at the psychological literature, people have a series of responses to this claim. They usually start with something like, you know, they, de- they start with something like denying that aid is good, uh, like, and they point to like corrupt charities, um, which isn't really an issue anymore because you have institutions like GiveWell and Oxfam. They like lean into sort of libertarian responses like, oh, this is my money. I've earned it. Why do I have to donate? But, you know, most people kind of accept that that's not really a plausible solution to the idea that you should donate at least some of your money. People argue that there is some moral relevance to moral proximity, but like most people really can't hold that view at the extremes. It's very obvious that that's not a morally relevant variable. So people finally retreat into the psychological argument, which is like, well, this is just too burdensome for me. Like there's too much that I could do. Isn't it really awful that like I would have to then give up all of my money and all my personal projects to saving this child? And so that became like a big deal for effective altruists because it it was the case that a lot of people were feeling this over-demanding this argument way really heavily on their head and they didn't know how to get around it until Will McCaskill developed the heroism view of saving people. So instead of viewing it as saving a drowning child and ruining your suit, you should view it like a burning building. 
inside there are some number of people that you can run in and save. You will not die in the fire. Like you'll be able to save one or two people, pull them out. And when you leave, you'll be viewed as a hero. It is an act of heroism that you've run in and saved those people's lives. Not only will you feel great about yourself, but the public will praise you for your acts of heroism. And for the same reason that like, that's not psychologically straining to say, oh, you can be a hero to go inside and save someone from a burning building every you know, couple of months or every year or something like that. It's also not really psychologically straining on you to view donations as an act of heroism, that you can save someone from the moral equivalent of a burning building every couple of weeks, every couple of months, every couple of years sort of thing. And that's probably the most novel answer that I think effective altruists have given and contributed to this question, which is to reframe it. Instead of it being an issue of guilt, um, it's an issue of positivity, right? You've done something good, morally rewarding. I have like, sorry, a little bit of a tangent, but uh, and the, there's a video game called World of Warcraft where they gave a, uh, a, a debuff for players playing too long to prevent people from like spending all day playing World of Warcraft. Um, uh, but they changed, people like rioted when this happened, but then they changed the debuff to a positive so you would have a well-rested buff for like the first couple of hours when you play it every week or whatever. And it massively changed people's perception of it. So I definitely think that um, effective altruists kind of use psychology in a way to maximize the number of people who would join their movement, become effective altruists, which then feeds back into the cycle of like helping people. There's a problem that some moral psychologists, or I should say a critique, um, the viewer can evaluate how much of a problem this is, I suppose. Uh, isolated by Rob Reich, Rob Reich and an Aeon article I read a while back uh, that or Rob Reich in his book, Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy, and uh, Akshay will link the, link the Aeon article. But basically, there's this problem that happens from socially praising philanthropy, is that there is inequality inherent in that. Because obviously, the Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, um, Jeff Bezos is at the top, will be able to give more? Does that imply that they are good people? Should they be be given tax deductions, like given monetary rewards for it? So a lot of more egalitarian critics bring this up in response to um, this effective altruism thing. Like, are these people really heroes? Is it really good to have this kind of stratification? All that. I also want to add on to that um, in that does the imperative to donate change when uh, you consider your own means? Like often I think we all kind of like what Sophia mentioned, consider that people who are really rich or have better means or maybe have contributed to a certain problem should donate to resolve things like what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does to address things like malaria. Um, so does the, is that morally salient to effective altruism? Does being richer mean that you have to not only donate more like progressive tax rates, right, where you donate a greater percentage of your income? So it's not just that you're donating more. It's that you're donating a greater percentage than you would um, if you were poorer. Does that factor into effective altruism? And I guess in addition, and when you combine that with Sophia's question, does that mean that they're more praiseworthy or not? So... I think one of the mistakes here is to classify it as like morally relevant. It's it's not really morally relevant, I guess, in the sense that you're using the word. It's just like, to what extent does this like make the world a better place? Because again, remember, this is just like effective altruism is kind of like science in, in this sense, in that it is just kind of like an intellectual and practical project and not really normative in any deep sense. Um, but I'll take the the objections in turn. So the 
critique that Reich makes that's not the same guy that used to be like the Secretary of Commerce or something like that. It's not, it's not him, although they seem oddly related because they make very similar arguments, weirdly enough, um, is an interesting one. Um, and certainly probably one of the deeper critiques of effective altruism as a whole. I mean, you get people from like the far left writing like Jacobin magazine arguing that effective altruism is failing because of structural issues. Um, and you get people even writing like theses, like their, their thesis on it, uh, that, that which they sort of loosely term the institutional critique of effective altruism. Um, I will say that the response here amongst effective altruists is relatively divided because um, they're not particularly unified in the causes they choose. Like the effective altruists who work primarily in issues of governance um, and who want to like institute broader progressive tax bases and stuff like that are going to have different responses to those that just like outwardly praise Bill Gates as like the single greatest like thing for humanity. And there are many of articles written about the awesomeness of Bill Gates. So from the start, it's not like the response here is unified but I'll give my personal opinion on them. The naive response that captures both of your problems is that it is still net better for people who have money to donate than to not. Like the opportunity cost to them donating isn't like that they make the United States into a democratic socialist utopia if you think like that's the goal or something like that. The alternative is they keep the money for themselves and it seems like all else equal, they better donate than not. Um, and that I think seems to be like where a lot of the defense uh, lies as the sort of most common nexus point for responding to these general institutional critiques. And that's usually coupled with defenses of like the fact that effective altruism is really just advice at the margins. It's not really supposed to be like a full on, uh, like it's not supposed to be like a full on project for literally everyone in the world to take. It's just like given you as an individual moral agent, what is the best thing to do with your money? Um, and for those uber rich, uh, it's probably to donate more of it. Um, I seem to, I, there was a few components of your question, Akshay. I don't remember exactly what it was. Can you kind of loosely sum it up again? Uh, do you think that does effective altruism like take into account how much you have and say you should donate a greater percentage of your income as a result? So like if I... Oh, yes, for sure. Yeah. And, and not, not just amount of income, but like percentage, like, like how tax rates scale up. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah, like a progressive, yeah, for sure. I mean, to be fair, like, it, basically the idea is like something better than nothing. But uh, certainly the, I would say the vast majority of effective altruists tend to think that the rich have an obligation to donate a greater percentage of their income, um, especially when you take into account like views of wealth where marginal, like marginal, diminishing marginal utility is a thing. So for example, like Toby Ord and Will McCaskill both live on like 30,000 US dollars or less a year because they, everything above that line just doesn't net contribute to their utility. And in the US, it turns out that line is like around 60 or $70,000. And so if you were like very strictly uh, into the goals of effective altruism, you would functionally donate everything you make above 60 or $70,000. Um, where I say the response differs is for people like Bill Gates who can form giant foundations and probably do more good in the world than if he donated all of his money um, just up front. They might say that there's a case for Bill Gates keeping that money to do greater good in the world by creating the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, which can do more than any individual person can. So I think now it's time to transition because I can already feel this is going to go this is going to go over uh, into kind of your experience with college philosophy. We have a lot of um, listeners who definitely want to continue their studying of philosophy in college, and I'm sure most of us do as well. So we just had a few questions for you since you're a film minor. Uh, first off, what was your favorite philosophy class you took as part of your major? It can be something loosely philosophy. So I only had to take six classes for my minor because the University of Oklahoma is not a particularly competitive university. Um, 
I'd say probably the most interesting one that I took was a graduate level seminar course on political philosophy covering, you know, basically the rise of it in the Greeks, um, culminating in critical theories of political philosophy at, at the end. And in between everything you could imagine, Rousseau to Rawls, basically. Um, that was pretty good. It met once a week. It covered like a, a an original writing uh, per week. And you just kind of discussed the progression of political theory and like different ways of viewing it. Um, but unfortunately, like that's kind of an obvious answer because a lot of the other classes I took were very not good because I was lumped into classes that were primarily populated with non-philosophy minors slash majors. Like I remember taking this class called environmental ethics that I thought was going to be interesting. Uh, but it turns out it was, I was like probably the only person that actually knew philosophy inside of it. And so instead of referring to it as utilitarianism and deontology, it was referred to as the ethics of consequences and the ethics of principles for the entire class. Um, a fact that annoyed me to no end, especially since the professor that taught that class was the same one that taught the graduate level political theory. He just knew that my classmates couldn't keep up. So that was, that was definitely the worst class. So um, do you choose your film minor because of debate or something else? So I wouldn't recommend people follow my example here, but I was, this was about the time when I was transitioning away from a CS major and I wanted to switch to a uh, management information systems major. Um, and in the interim, I didn't really know what class I was going to take, uh, mostly because I kind of applied for the school of business a little bit late. And so about two days before the semester started, I walked into the philosophy office and was like, can I just get a philosophy minor? And I just enrolled for six classes. Uh, and that was it. Um, but certainly the reason I gravitated towards philosophy was because of my introduction to it in debate. Um, and, uh, and I picked a lot of classes that had uh, that were more in the applied ethics realm slash like normative ethics realm. Like I only picked one class that was related to epistemology. Um, the rest, like I, I avoided all of like the metaphysics class and stuff like that. Cause that's just not the stuff that was interesting from debate. So certainly debate was a big influence. Cool. And uh, our last, last question on that is what types of people would you recommend studying philosophy in college to? What do you think are the benefits of it? I can't say I got a ton out of my philosophy minor other than the fact that I get to say that I have a philosophy minor um, because honestly, like I, it's not like I did all of the reading for those classes and a lot of the reading I'd actually kind of discovered in debate prior. Like it's incredible the amount of uh, philosophy that you get exposed to in debate. Um, but if you're interested in going to law or if you're just interested in sort of improving the general state of your mind, such like it makes, makes you better at processing information, then like philosophy is certainly very helpful at that. Like I, I would say, um, of the students that I've coached in the past that have gone on to get philosophy degrees, like those are probably the people that do the best on the LSAT because like getting good at logic classes and like getting good at critical thinking and just like being able to think about things from a variety of different perspectives is just like a really useful skill in life. And, you know, I could go on a long tirade about how information overload has like made it impossible for us to properly process information nowadays. And like the benefits of critical thinking in the age of like the internet makes it more important now, like now than ever, but like that should be kind of obvious. I'll leave that to the side. Cool. So how, how is effective altruism relevant in the age of Corona? How does it relate to triage and that sort of thing? Um, so I don't want to get into this probably too much uh, because I am not a medical expert and those are really the only people we ought to be listening to in issues of coronavirus. Like I think probably one of the largest problems with our federal government is its sidelining of those who are actual experts on the subject. And in fact, that's probably one of the largest criticisms levied against um, effective altruists, because even though they were among the first group to take COVID-19 very seriously and raise the alarm bells, uh, mostly because a lot of the EA people are in like research institutions and they have access to this information, um, and they sounded the alarm bells certainly earlier than the average person, 
the vast majority of them were not working on medical related things. They weren't working in areas of global biological catastrophic risk. They weren't working in issues of pandemic prevention, stuff like that. And so they ended up getting a lot of the science wrong at the beginning. Um, and that's just because they were like reading all of the bad information that was coming out. And without the background and expertise to distinguish between what was good and bad information and like good and bad studies, um, as well as being able to process through a lot of the misinformation that was being disseminated out there, they ended up like probably muddying the response more than they ought to have. And because EA people tend to occupy positions of research authority, they might have like ended up slightly hurting it just because people would listen to misinformation they otherwise may not have. And this critique, I think, is further developed by... Uh, Dr. Greg Lewis on one of the more recent 80,000 Hours podcasts where uh, he talks a lot about the COVID response and there's a ton of podcasts on the 80,000 Hours podcast that are about COVID that will cover this way more in depth um, than I can here. Awesome, Coach Lawrence. We thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. Yeah, if you liked anything about this podcast or have any ideas for future podcasts or want to be a guest on this podcast like Lawrence was, uh, email us at harkerphilosophyclub at gmail.com. Uh, come join our meetings next year, I guess. But uh, that's all. Thanks for listening.